0: Bonjour, bienvenue Planet Money.
1: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson.
2: And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Today is Tuesday, November 30th. That was Marana Anarab, who prefers to be called Madame Claude. You heard at the top. On the show today, we're gonna take you to a school in Haiti to follow up on money that you, our Planet Money listeners, donated thousands of dollars to one school. But first, of course, we have Jacob Goldstein with the Planet Money Indicator.
3: Today's Planet Money Indicator is 5.5%. That's about how much interest Spain has to pay to borrow money for 10 years. Now, by comparison, Germany is paying less than 3% to borrow money for 10 years. So you can think of Spain like a guy with bad credit. You know, people will lend him money, but they say, we're going to charge you a lot of interest
1: to do that. Now, it is no surprise at all that Spain would have to pay more That the world of investors would charge Spain more to lend them money. I mean, that's been the case for, since before there was a Germany. I mean, Spain, like, what, it was the 16th century when they were an economic powerhouse bigger than the German nations. But what is troubling is that the amount Spain has to pay to borrow, in other words, the measure of how much people are freaked out about Spain, has increased in the last week. Last weekend, the European Union announced this big bailout of Ireland, and the whole goal was actually, in part, to help people feel calmer about Spain. The idea was, hey, we're going to stop this contagion, don't worry so much, the euro is going to survive, the euro is going to be strong. So the fact that investors around the world are more worried about Spain this week is really troubling. It is, and and Spain is an especially big deal. You know, Greece went earlier this
3: year and there was a bailout for Greece, and everybody kind of knew the Ireland bailout was coming, Portugal maybe going to need a bailout too. But But, all of those countries you take you take Greece, Ireland, and Portugal, take them all, and double them that 's about how big Spain is, right? So Europe can bail out Greece, Europe can bail out Ireland, Europe can bail out Portugal. But if Spain needs a bailout, that is a big deal that is going to cause massive economic trouble in Europe
1: and here, I mean that we in the u s are really not going to feel the pain of a bankrupt. Greece or Ireland or a bailed out Greece or Ireland. But if Spain goes and the entire Eurozone is thrown into that level of turmoil, our companies aren't going to be able to sell stuff to Europe. The European financial institutions are not going to be able to do the same level of uh, investment with, with American companies. I mean, that's going to really hurt the whole world.
3: Right. And, and as we found out a couple of years ago, the whole financial system is so interconnected that who knows what will happen here, essentially, if Spain goes down. So I should add here that our own Khanna Walt today was making calls to Spain, and we hope she will be on a plane to Spain in the next few weeks to figure out for us
1: what's really going on there. And we'll certainly be bringing you much about Spain and Europe and the U.S. and the economic crisis that never seems to end. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. All right. So on today's podcast, we're going to do this follow-up with the school you and I visited. But in doing that, I think we're going to be able to tackle this big question that we at Plant Money have thought a lot about this year, which is, what is the best way for people in wealthy countries help people in really, really poor countries? The main way that happens now is government to government, so the US government gives the Haitian government money and the Haitian government uses it this way or that, or individuals will give money to big NGOs like Oxfam or whatever, UNICEF, and they will then um, divvy up the money. But there is an argument that economists make and some activists make that the most efficient thing, the best thing, is just give the money directly to the poor people. Let them decide how to spend it. N- don't use this massive NGO infrastructure between the donors and the recipients.
2: We've been doing a lot of reporting from Haiti over the last few months. And one of the stories we did created a natural experiment to test this question. What happens when you give the money to the people directly? A few months ago, we profiled a school in La Thiboni, Haiti. And after that story aired, you listeners wanted to donate money. Let's hear a little from that first story. (laughs) While we're in the classroom, I noticed that the teacher spends a lot of time writing full paragraphs on the chalkboard. It was nearly full. And later, he tells us that's because he wants the kids who can't afford the books to be able to write down the lesson.
1: The school certainly can't afford to give the kids textbooks or even notebooks. They can't afford to pay the teachers every month. The principal, Anselm simplice tells us that the teachers stick around because they all went to school here and want to help.
2: Here's what else the school can't afford, a school building. Classes are taking place in a small one-room church. There's blackboards precariously leaning against the walls. Kids are sitting in pews, and they're trying to awkwardly take notes in their laps. Outside and back, the little kids are under a tarp. And everywhere you go, it's so hot that it's hard to breathe.
1: Principal Simplice takes out the school's financial records, all written by hand on a few sheets of loose leaf paper. It shows how much each family owes the school. Tuition is 350 Haitian dollars. That's around 45 bucks US. Each sheet of paper has a list of all the kids from a grade. Next to each kid's name is a number how much his or her parents owe the school. So this is like sixth grade Charles, 350. Fanard, 150. Jerome, 250. 50. So in the entire sixth grade, one kid paid most of his account, and the majority paid nothing.
0: Yes, yeah. yes, exactly.
1: So that story aired on Morning Edition, and we started getting all these emails This it actually happened to us a few months earlier with, a, with another story we did about someone in Haiti. And, you know, we're, we're reporters, our job is to report. We personally and and PR, we don't set up NGOs. We don't directly contribute money to the people we report on. But something we felt comfortable doing was advising the principal of the school, Anselm Simplice, that he should set up a bank account that could accept international donations. And we let listeners know how they could send money.
2: The money started coming in. And the principal had told us that if he could just get $800, that would change everything. He thought with $800, he could buy new textbooks and desks. And he even had this dream of building a small addition onto the classroom to put a roof over where the little kids are sitting in the back. He thought $800 would let him do so much for the school.
1: And actually, you listeners donated not $800, but over $3,000, which was sort of an amazing amount. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's, you know, again, it's an awkward position. We're not supposed to help people. But you and I were really thrilled, Caitlin. I mean, we we were really moved by the principal and the kids and and this whole school. And it felt just wonderful to think that our reporting could lead to a real transformation of life for the school and its students. And- also, we intellectually curious and thought this is a great way to test this question. You know, what happens when you give $3,000 directly to a school that needs it?
2: Exactly. So a couple months after the money was donated, I actually went back to Haiti to see what had changed. Principal Simplice told me through a translator that he was amazed when he went to the bank to get the money. And he started to realize that he could do more than he had dreamed of. He could do more than buy notebooks and desks. He could build a brand new school. The kids are currently taking classes in a church. This would be the first time they had their own school building. And so he told the parents and the kids, that's what we're going to do. We're going to build a brand new
0: school. The the way
2: the children react here,
0: it's like, um after school when they're walking by with the other comrades from from other schools they're talking like yeah i'm gonna have a new school man i'm gonna have the new school it's gonna build by uh, we got that fund from um um, american people so american people are behind us and they're helping us to, to build their new school so come on man
2: we're gonna be um fresh also Work on the new building began in September, and principals and police told the students it would be completed one month later in October. But that hasn't happened. So we're standing across the street in this foundation. There's a bunch of concrete blocks in the middle. So tell me how this is going to be set up.
0: For example, we have, a salsa. we have a class of salsa 5th and 6th and this big classroom, with this big classroom, we're going to have the fifth and sixth grade here. Four,
2: Four months after the money came in, Adam, it's all been spent, all $3,000. And all the school has to show for it is a foundation and a stack of concrete blocks. There's a hole in the back of this foundation where... The principal hoped to put bathrooms, and it's starting to fill up with trash. And there are no walls, so goats and chickens are just roaming around everywhere. You weren't able to come with me on this trip, but I brought a picture in here in studio with me to show you of what it looks like now.
1: Oh, God, it's so sad because you can see it's, it's a big foundation for what would be a really nice school. There's a pile of cinder block, and so you... I can see the potential, but I can also see there is no school there. This is completely useless. This is like
2: dirt and rocks.
1: Dirt and rocks.
2: And we're going to post some of these pictures on our blog, npr.org slash money. And it may not look like much to you, but compared to the way the school is operating right now, this new building would have been a huge step up.
1: All right. So so this is it. The foundation and the pile of not enough cinder blocks, that's that's all they have from the $3,000.
2: That's all they have. Since visiting the school, I've spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out what happened, how the project could have been so mismanaged. The one thing I know for sure is that this was a much bigger project than Principal Simplist had ever been in charge of. $3,000 is about what a typical Haitian earns in 10 years. It's many, many times bigger than the school's annual budget.
1: Yeah, when you told me about this, I thought it's like if someone came up to me or one of our listeners and said, "Hey, here's ten million dollars. Go build yourself a skyscraper." Like we have no idea if that's enough money or nowhere near enough money. Is how many bricks do you need? How much glass? How do you build a foundation? We, it it would be a bigger project than we've ever handled, and th- and that's the position he was in.
2: Exactly. He tried to be responsible. He told me that he bought all the materials himself, but he doesn't have any construction experience. And he was wrong about how much rock and sand he would need. He thought three truckloads of each would be enough, but it wasn't even close. And the contractor he hired wasn't much help either. He just kept saying, oh, yeah, sorry. This is going to be a lot more than we talked about.
1: Right. Which sounds like contractors everywhere. (laughs) They underbid to get the job and then suddenly the real cost comes in. Now, we should say when when we first started hearing from listeners that they wanted to help, some people we know who do this kind of work said, well, you need to get an NGO to partner with him. You need some outside expert who can help him. And and we actually made some phone calls. We called, uh, I can't remember everyone we called, but a lot. We called Oxfam and the UN and, and a few other NGOs. I even called like the Baptist Church, the National Baptist Church, because his church is a Baptist church trying to see if there was any NGOs who could help him with building projects. But L'Artibonite is a desperately poor area. The cholera is centered there. They have a lot of needs. But all those NGOs you hear about, they're all in Port-au-Prince in the capital. L'Artibonite is two hours north of where the earthquake struck. And so we couldn't find any NGOs within 100 miles of him who were in a position to, to help him. So he really was on his own.
2: And that means he had the sole responsibility for the project, and now he's the one taking all the blame for it going wrong.
0: I, I, feel, I feel ashamed. I feel really, really ashamed. Every morning I'm, I'm, I, I woke up and I see the foundation and I see those concrete blocks the way they are. And people around are, like, uh, making fun of out of me, you know, because... They were aware that a project started, the schools were supposed to to start and finalize by October or something. But I feel really, really ashamed. It's like, it's a it's a kind of pressure for me also.
2: Principal Simplice had a friend who's a contractor come look at the building, and he's pretty sure that for another $3,000, he could finish it. But he just doesn't know where that money would come from. As we heard in the first story, the parents can barely pay tuition. So they don't have any extra money to donate to finish the school.
1: So it just looks like there's just not going to be a school. That, that, that 3000 is just
2: gone. It's hard to imagine right now that they'll be able to finish and move classes into that new building.
1: So the story of the school is a really strong data point in favor of the argument, hey, don't give money directly to poor people if you want them to do transformative things Sort of by definition, they don't know how to do the transformative things because they haven't yet been transformed. You really need this framework of NGOs and you need this framework of of outside helpers to help them spend that money properly. Although as we reported, like Han and I did all that reporting on the mango processing centers, we learned that those NGOs bring with them a ton of red tape and a ton of bureaucracy that slows things down. And that story we did about Yves Rose Jean Baptiste, she was the very poor, incredibly savvy entrepreneur, the one who would borrow money, then ride a bus to the Dominican border, buy a bunch of like spaghetti and tomato sauce and stuff, bring it back to Port-au-Prince, sell it for a tiny profit, then make the trip again. Listeners were moved by her story as well. They sent money for her as well, same way, using a microfinance bank, the same Funkosé bank. And she actually got a little more than the school, a little more than $3,000. And she is like the poster child of the argument, hey, just give the money directly to the poor people. She did it exactly right. She paid off the little debt that she had. She spent money to get her kids in school. And she saved a big chunk because, as she said, a lot of tragedies seem to happen in Haiti. And when you don't have savings, and she had never had savings before, you can't really weather those tragedies. And then she spent about 1500 bucks buying a stall in a popular market and really building a much more successful business than the one she had before. It's hard in the case of Eve Rose to imagine an NGO could have helped her any more than she helped herself.
2: And we thought the story of the school and principal in Sanderson Police would be another great example, another huge success story that these kids would be much better off than the first time we met them. But they aren't. Nothing has really changed at all. And so if we've proven anything, I guess, in this podcast, it's that sometimes it works to give people the money directly and sometimes it doesn't.
1: Which, by the way, is what the data shows. I mean, I've read a fair bit of Uh, reports on this, economists study this kind of thing, giving money directly or not giving money directly. And it does seem that it can be incredibly beneficial, that, that many poor people, even some of the poorest, least educated people in the world, are incredibly savvy about what they need to make their lives better. And they know much better than some foreign NGO who flies in. At the same time, there are projects that are beyond the capacity of local people that, you know, Construction projects, water sanitation projects, health and medical projects—that the local community typically does not have that capability. So I, I am still fascinated by this issue, and I'd love to keep an eye on it. As you know, I'm going to go back to Haiti in uh, in January, and I'm hoping to visit the school and see if there's been any progress at all.
2: You can see pictures of the current school where classes are held and the foundation for the new school on our blog, npr.org money.
1: And as always, we very much want to hear your thoughts on today's show. Please send us an email to planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Adam Davidson.
2: And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Thank you for listening.